This is a podcast from Queen's University Belfast, shaping a better world since 1845. Pandemic, of or pertaining to a disease prevalent over a whole country or the world. In this series of podcasts, historians at Queen's University Belfast look back on some famous pandemics. Part 3. After the Plague The Black Death had a dramatic impact on medieval institutions and society. James Davis is a senior lecturer at Queen's University's Centre for Economic History. We discussed how the Black Death struck Europe in 1347, spreading rapidly across the continent and taking the lives of close to 50% of the population. This pandemic, probably a lethal mix of bubonic and pneumonic plague, reached England by early summer 1348 and Ireland soon after. John Clin, a Franciscan friar in Kilkenny in Ireland, wrote of the plague. Plague stripped villages, cities, castles and towns of their inhabitants so thoroughly that there was scarcely anyone left alive in them. This pestilence was so contagious that those who touched the dead or the sick were immediately infected themselves and died, so that penitent and confessor were carried together to the grave. Because of their fear and horror, men could hardly bring themselves to perform the pious and charitable acts of visiting the sick and burying the dead. Many died of boils, abscesses and pustules which erupted on the legs and in the armpits. Others died in a frenzy brought on by an affliction of the head or vomiting blood. Having been infected himself and known he wouldn't survive, the writer Clin continued, So that notable deeds should not perish with time and be lost in the memory of future generations. I, seeing these many ills and that the whole world is encompassed by evil, waiting among the dead for death to come, have committed to writing what I truly heard and examined. And so that the writing does not perish with the writer, nor the work fail with the workman, I leave parchment for continuing the work, in case anyone should still be alive in the future. And any son of Adam can escape this pestilence and continue the work thus begun. What was life like during the peak outbreaks? Certainly, after the initial shock of the plague in Italy, the rest of Europe had seen it coming and were terrified. Many resorted to religious moral hygiene and prayers, viewing the pestilence as a punishment from God for their sins, intended to frighten them into repentance and good behaviour. In general, there were public prayers and penances, sanctioned and ordered by the church. But ordinary men and women expressed fears in their own ways too. There was a surge in pilgrimages and in the formation of fraternities. Many looked to the Virgin Mary to shield them with her cloak. A prayer to the Virgin Mary against the pestilence from a late medieval book of ours went like this. Star of heaven, who nourished the Lord and rooted up the plague of death, which our first parents planted, may that star now deign to counter the constellations whose strife brings the people the ulcers of a terrible death. O glorious star of the sea, save us from the plague. Hear us, for your son who honours you denies you nothing. The plague had its special patron saints. Saint Sebastian was very popular. He was martyred by the Emperor Diocletian in the 3rd century, shot with arrows, left for dead and healed by Irene. But as soon as his survival was discovered, 
the emperor bludgeoned him to death. Throughout the epidemic, the onslaught of plague was described as like arrows being fired at the victims. Thus, Sebastian symbolised the power to resist plague, although he did die after being bludgeoned to death. St Christopher too was a protective saint from sudden death, and his image increasingly common by the entrance to parish churches. And in Italy, St Roche was increasingly involved. He had contracted the plague while nursing the sick, but miraculously survived. There were, however, more extreme reactions. There were the flagellants, a penitential movement popular in Italy and Germany. Some even came across the channel. Thomas Walshenham mentioned in 1350, Penitents arrived in England, noble men of foreign birth, who lashed themselves viciously on their naked bodies until the blood flowed, now weeping, now singing. The clergy eventually turned against them as the movement showed contempt for the church's authority and stirred up virulent anti-Semitism. Many looked for a scapegoat beyond their own sins, and the Jews faced the worst condemnation, being tortured to confess that they had poisoned the wells and spread the disease. In his chronicle, Hermann Gigas said, God, the Lord of vengeance, has not suffered the malice of the Jews to go unpunished. Throughout Germany, in all but a few places, they were burnt. For fear of that punishment, many accepted baptism and their lives were spared. This action was taken against the Jews in 1349 and it still continues unabated, for in a number of regions many people, noble and humble alike, have laid plans against them and their defenders, which they will never abandon until the whole Jewish race has been destroyed. Some may have believed that the Jews were a cause of the plague, or that the Jews were enemies of Christ, who thus had to be purged at the end of the world. But there was also undoubtedly a conspiracy amongst leading members of the community to free themselves of the debts they owed to Jewish moneylenders. Rumours spread of an international conspiracy rooted amongst wealthier Jews. The Pope actually stepped forward and forbade the killing of Jews without due legal process, but popular pressure was rampant, and in over a hundred towns, followers of Judaism were burnt at the stake. There were, of course, immediate problems for communities struck by this catastrophe, such as burying the dead, a shortage of clergy and legal problems of inheritance. Crops remained rotten in the fields due to the loss of labour, on top of a series of poor harvests which may have been more of a problem if it hadn't been for the high mortality and the collapse in demand. Parish priests in particular were at the forefront of the plague in delivering last rites and spiritual support. They also suffered in terms of a high death rate. Yet some were also accused of running away or demanding higher payments for their services. People were trying to reconcile a plague that they saw as God's punishment for their sins, with a church that was supposed to protect their morality and souls, and which had seemingly failed. Giovanni Boccaccio in the Decameron, one of the most evocative narrators for the plague, expressed his immediate anxieties for Florence. In the face of so much affliction and misery, all respect for the laws of God and man had virtually broken down and been extinguished in our city. For like everybody else, those ministers and executors of the law who were not either dead or ill, were left with so few subordinates that they were unable to discharge any of their duties. Hence, everyone was free to behave as he pleased. His most shocking observation was that the deceased were being ill-treated in their burials, tipped into the ground with as little ceremony as a dead goat. 
all the necessary observances for a good death that would allow one's soul to eventually navigate their way to heaven were being neglected. But underneath such shock and moral concern, there was a remarkable resilience that seems to have held society in crisis together. Many burial arrangements seemed to have been relatively organised and dignified. Even though mass pits had to be dug outside the cities in Italy and France, the ground was still consecrated beforehand and masses were said. In the countryside, many manors had immediate acute labour shortages and suffered dislocation, but the evidence suggests routines continued. Substitutes were found for dead officials, clerks and tenants. Institutions were seemingly robust enough to survive stresses. On many landed estates, peasant holdings left vacant in the 1350s were rented out fairly speedily, if only on short-term leases. Perhaps two-fifths of the land changed hands in 1349, and these new tenants were often the previously landless or young. They were filling dead men's boots quicker than expected. Often holdings were taken by surviving tenants who thus expanded their acreage. Many houses still became surplus. Ruined dwellings and empty plots littered the countryside, as they did in the towns. We don't really see whole villages or hamlets deserted in the immediate aftermath of the Black Death, unless they were already in severe decline. The immediate consequences were shocking, but perhaps not long-lasting. In England in 1349, we see the government reacting swiftly to labour shortages by implementing the Ordinance of Labourers. It sought to artificially hold wages and prices to pre-Black Death levels and to restrict the movement of workers. The Statue of Labourers of 1351 was reinforced by an apparatus of royal officials who toured the country, punishing those who broke its stipulations. Landlords were only too happy to support such efforts as a mean to control their serfs on the manors. The government and the elite landlords were trying to keep business as usual, while proclaiming they were maintaining the social order and the common good, but it bred resentment. We see extensive evidence both of lords forced to compromise their tenants about payments and dues, and of serfs simply running away. In the county of Durham in 1353, the serf, William Bacon, fled Wrighton for the nearby man of Wynne Latin. Four years later, despite the efforts of the bishop, he still remained there and has seemingly escaped the ties of bondage. The breakdown of serfdom was happening rapidly in the aftermath of the Black Death, with peasants exerting their newfound bargaining power and greater freedom of action. This prompted disgust amongst medieval moralists like William Langland and John Gower, who attacked the greed and laziness of workers, suggested they were in danger of damning their own souls. They were commenting on what they saw as a world turned upside down. The lower orders were getting above themselves, the established social order was being overturned. As Gower stated, the world is changed and overthrown that is well nigh upside down compared with days of long ago. The Black Death has been termed the Great Leveller. It struck indiscriminately among the population, rich or poor, young or old, male or female. Admittedly, the nobility, the better off, were better able to isolate themselves or run away. But the Inquisition's post-mortem for England suggests that even this group suffered a 25% mortality. Similarly, monks were able to lock down away in their monasteries. But once a plague entered a community, 
it could be devastating. The phrase, Great Leveller, might also be applied to what happened in the years and decades after the plague, as its full demographic, social, economic and psychological impact became apparent. However, after 1349, there were obstacles to recovery. There were a series of recurrent plagues in England in 1361 to 2, 1369 and 1375. Pandemics, it seems, do not simply disappear. Medieval society experienced fewer deaths in those later outbreaks, though the chroniclers comment on how they particularly struck children and adolescents, perhaps 10 to 15% in the 1360s. They were, though, severe and frequent enough to cut back recovery. After the initial shock of the Black Death, it appears that plague had become endemic, liable to appear sporadically and locally. Possibly it had become less virulent, or maybe society had just become better at dealing with it. Chroniclers do continue to refer to it occasionally, but no one now expected the world to end. However, these continual plagues were important for 15th century Europe. It is generally agreed that this recurrent mortality, rather than fall in fertility, was the prime factor in meaning there was no sustained recovery for the population for more than 100 years after the initial strike of the Black Death. The population had stagnated, and this was to have significant consequences for society and economy. Historians have traditionally viewed the century after the Black Death as a bleak period which drove European countries into depression in agriculture, commerce and urbanisation. But can we actually see a silver lining of more positive effects stemming from the population stagnation? One historian described the plague as more purgative than toxic. In many ways, the Black Death was a precursor to change. A social revolution that allowed the labourers to flex their economic muscle in which the old certainties of the high Middle Ages were swept away. For those who survived, there were rising living standards and opportunities. They could earn more, get more land. We see those lower down the social scale eating a better diet of meat and ale. The emergence of the pub can even be traced at this time. And women were seemingly entering the workforce to a greater extent, though many still argue they were not able to escape the constraints of male bias. Nevertheless, the century that followed the Black Death has even been coined a golden age for labourers. Over the course of the 15th century, the feudal system collapsed. Respect for the social hierarchy and order was undermined. The lower strata of society had a newfound confidence and belligerence. It may even have played a part in popular revolts across Europe, including the 1381 Peasants' Revolt in England. Other economic changes of the time, such as agrarian capitalism or the individualism of economic practice, have more debatable links to the Black Death but there were certainly cultural changes. A growing sense of mortality in macabre art, the skeletal image of death, King Death. And there was an increasing appetite for religion among ordinary people. This was reflected in a growing obsession with morbidity and its representation, perhaps driven by fears over one's soul and sudden death. There was a greater sense of the transience of life we thus see cadaver and transi tombs where the elite showed humility by displaying a sculpture of their decaying body upon the tomb. The imagery of the dance of death emerged in wall paintings and manuscripts, including the famous woodblock prints by Holbein. In these, everyone dances through life and into purgatory, alongside their own personification of death. 
Conversely, some have even seen the roots of the Renaissance in European society buoyed by its own sense of survival. Although there was undoubtedly a loss of skilled artisans across Europe, the old arguments about cultural poverty and a loss of quality is perhaps overplayed. Other forms of art and architecture are beginning to emerge with a new type of focus and adventure. However, many 20th century historians were reluctant to assign all such changes to just one factor, plague. Instead, they've stressed cultural continuities, with the plague merely allowed a supporting role as an intensifier of existing patterns of thought. The Black Death was a cataclysmic event, not only for the people who died and those who survived, but for decades to come, especially as plague struck again and again, even if less virulently. We can take heart from the resilience of human communities in the face of such trials. Others have been here before, in a worse pandemic and endured. But we should also recognise its wide-reaching effects. Perhaps most notably for English society, over time the long-term population stagnation helped liberate the lower ranks of society. Whether the prime force was revolt, resistance or the force of economic conditions, a new balance was established in the 15th century. The authorities adjusted to the reality that peasants, artisans and wage labourers had improved their bargaining power and changed their view of the society in which they lived and their place in it. For many, the Black Death was a catastrophic event, but they learnt to adapt. For others, it was perhaps an emancipating force and a chance for a new start. Pandemic, the podcast series from Queen's University Belfast. Please rate and review and share this podcast.